0: My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear From The Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 10 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. What do cats like to eat for breakfast? Mice Krispies. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Pretty stupid dad joke, but. Uh, and you know me, I'm not done. What do you call the cat that was caught by the police? The perpetrator. <laughs> What's the difference between a cat and a comma? One has claws at the end of its paws while the other is a pause at the end of a clause. Alright, I'll be done after this one. It is fun though. I dress my dog up as a cat for Halloween. Now he won't come when I call him. A crazy, creepy, and never-before-heard tale tonight from New to Fear from the Heartland author Eric Fisher. Let's get after it. Everyone on this Earth has the capability of being saved, even the most hardened individual. Silas Green is one of those individuals. His life has not been an easy one. He saw things in the jungle of Vietnam that most could never imagine. He questioned then, and the many years after, if he even qualified as someone who could be saved. When the most unlikely of entities, a giant and large mutant cats, show him there is a way, will that be enough? And now for your indulgence, And I Mean Meat by Eric Fisher. Excerpt from UFOsAbout.com Paranormal Stories Archive PhantasmsAndMonsters.com Strange Tales from Vietnam and Indochina Divine Intervention Location DMZ Vietnam Date Late 1966 Time Afternoon at a landing zone called Oasis, the witness was working as a door gunner. On that date, he was pulling perimeter guard duty. As they came under attack, a C-130 gunship called Puff the Magic Dragon flew just outside their position and was working out their guns. It looked like fire coming from a hose in the dark. The next morning, the other gunners and the witness decided to rearrange to ammo to have all the tracers together to give the same effect as the night before. That afternoon, they went out on a recon mission. As they approached the landing zone, they opened up with their machine guns. The LZ, landing zone, was large and mostly clear waste-high dried grass. As they landed, they received enemy fire. Small fires started all over from their tracer rounds. He heard on the intercom that a helicopter behind them was down with main rotor problems and fires had them enveloped. His captain ordered him to go back with a fire bottle and see if he could help. The witness grabbed the bottle but did not think to take his rifle. As he ran to their position, the crew chief waved him back. It seems like the rotor was fine and they were about to take off. As he ran back, he became disoriented and became lost. As he ran around looking, he heard someone shout, "dung Li, which means stop or halt in Vietnamese. He looked around and saw a North Vietnamese soldier pointing his AK at him. Feeling helpless, Since he was completely unarmed, he dropped to his knees, hands up. At the same time, the soldier spoke to him things he could not understand. As the soldier backed up, the witness knew he was going to die. From fear, he then felt overwhelming sadness. As his whole life passed in front of his eyes, he just hoped that it did not hurt so much. Suddenly, a total peace came over him, a feeling he could not describe. He then heard a loud crack he jumped up thinking that he had been shot. He heard a thump and saw the enemy soldier fall to the ground. As he looked up, he saw the tallest person he had ever seen. He saw what appeared to be a GI about seven or eight feet tall. He just stood there motionless, perfect in dress, incredibly with no soil marks or sweat, a perfect-looking figure. His eyes shaded by the helmet showed through, and aura appeared to be all around him. He then spoke to the witness clearly. He told him that it was okay that he was going to be safe. He added, Thomas, go back to your bird. The witness realized that the stranger's lips never moved. Apparently, he had communicated with him telepathically. Thomas jumped up and ran to his bird helicopter. As they lifted up, he looked down to see the dead enemy soldier, but no sign of the giant figure. He never mentioned what really happened to anyone for over 30 years. Ten Years Ago The large, stocky, aging man, now with already white, close-cropped hair and a slight gait to his walk, and the young boy beside him enthusiastically milling around in the junk despite the cool fall weather, looked around at the Yellowwood City dump, With a denial of disgust where they also routinely disposed of his monthly recyclables it was a time-consuming ritual but a recently retired guy with time on his hands who didn't want to incinerate everything in a backyard barrel could still make a buck at the local salvage plant for his efforts going through smelly bins full of beer cans and bottles or whatever else was saved from the waste stream additionally it was a good way to spend some time and just have lunch with his seldom seen grandkid nathan maybe teaching him some responsibility and getting him away from his man-hopping mom with her dead-end job in the process. Former Army Master Sergeant Silas Green, who had learned over the years to enjoy his bitterness and solitude, had just recently retired from the Indianapolis-Orleans and Southern Railroad as a yard dispatcher and now had more than enough time to rummage through landfills. He hoped the hippies who used to spit on his men when they returned from the Nam. We're happy with his attempts at recycling efforts to save the planet, thank you very much. He remembered the dump when he was a kid. Heck, back then, you could get rid of anything here. So citizens and corporations indeed unknowingly, or very knowingly, did. The rumors of sequestered toxic waste could not be too far off, given the smell and ripe orange-yellow ooze present through cracks in the soil. The Buchanan County Commissioners in charge of operating the landfill were good anti-environmentalist Farm Bureau Republicans all. Of course, living in nice isolated developments on the other side of the county, they just outsourced the town of Yellowwood's waste hauling and they didn't give a damn what happened here. The old vet wiped some snot on his flannel sleeve in the cool weather and rummaged through some dirty metal, maybe items worth something at the scrapyard. Remember, time is money. A man not given to too much sympathy, Silas looked at his grandchild Nathan while he smoked and vindictively thought, his worthless mom should be here in the dump too. The whore was out spending years of child support at the bar, while Nathan's dad Jerry was out keeping us free from Saddam Hussein, aka So Damn Insane and the rest of the oil-misering ragheads during the Gulf War before he got killed. Now she's getting Jerry's social security, his military pension, and raising a cane for a kid. Guess just time will tell how he turns out. The tow-headed kid suddenly tugged at the old man's sleeve, oblivious to the place's sights and smells of decay, and ripping the sergeant from his redundant mournful thoughts. Nathan suddenly pointed at a random spot and cried out, "'Grandpa, look at there. I think it's cats. Why do they live here in the dump?' Silas suddenly focused on a pile of debris where three little kittens were hiding, crying out for food and companionship. Three cautiously padded out to petition Silas for their existence, unusually large for their age, rambunctious and furry, somewhat oblivious to their filthy home. The rotund female playfully rolled on the ground, perhaps hoping for a treat. One was still hiding in the rotten box her meow a perverted cry. Finally, it shuffled out, almost slithered out, the runt of the litter. It had a slightly larger head, which made sense, given that the mutant abomination had three eyes set over two mouths. One orifice was normal in appearance, but somewhat offset in the jaw, the other small and off to the side on the face, Its ears were set back on its head somewhat more than usual. She stumbled a bit as her limbs were misaligned and a little bent sideways, all but unable to catch much to keep her alive. Despite its malformations, the kitten had bright, keen, golden eyes. All three of them, with a beautiful and unique calico coat blended with tiger features and a long, fluffy tail. She looked up with a pitiful gaze, but also with one as with a purpose, as if to defiantly say she could catch a prey no one else could. The thing was just like its littermates, simply wanting a chance to escape this dump. Silas looked at it and swore it had six claws on its right paw, not five. Holy smokes, if the stuff in the landfill caused this, what the hell's getting into the town's drinking water now? Stories of a few neighbors around here going mad, giving birth to stillborn children, or just mentally shutting down with paranoid hallucinations over the past few years may have some justification. More like LSD than PCBs. Most children tend to have either an imaginative and protective fascination or abhorrence with the abnormal. More comfortable with the latter, Nathan said, it's really gross looking. Shouldn't we kill it and put it out of its misery? The mutant cat peered up at them and tried to mouth something with its smaller orifice to plead its case, somehow realizing that these only large-smelling beings could save it. It extended its right paw as if to exclaim it simply wanted to be part of a normal family or a normal animal. At that, Silas stopped to remember his comrades back in the Nam, some who had been hideously disfigured by shrapnel, burning phosphorus grenade blasts or communist Viet Cong torture. Many were still shunned by society as forgotten freaks in some VA hospital, not as heroes defending American freedom. He felt almost as if he understood this being's sorry condition just trying to exist, maybe just needing some help or empathy. Not a man given to faith, Silas said sternly with his southern Indiana drawl, God don't make mistakes. It's got a purpose for everything. Maybe that thing deserves to live too. I'll keep them all. We don't leave no one behind. Keep them in the toolbox in the truck bed for now until we get back to the house. Just put your gloves on and be careful so they don't scratch you. We'll give them all a flea bath and food. Maybe they'll be all right. We'll put them to work too. Lots of mice around the barn anyway. <laughs> He was sure there was some kind of toxic waste or chemical perversity that made the small cat the way it was but the other had their own oddities one had huge fangs and another had oversized paws the other was just fat their parents had obviously abandoned them and were long gone maybe dead or perhaps mutated themselves he wasn't sure if he could take them to a veterinarian and explain the situation yet He later, indeed, made one initial trip to a rather surprised vet and quietly got them all fixed and provided shots. And that was the last anyone in town saw of the creatures. No one bothered to keep their records. The little cats became to know Silas as the bowl filler, which had given him some small recognition as time and life's purposes continued to pass him by. Sadly, as much as he cared for them, the cats all sickened and passed away over the next year, probably victims of their toxic origin. Silas stoically buried them behind what was left of the aging barn, with what would be described as full military honors for the animals. He had taken good time to play with them and had fed them well, with fresh milk and leftovers from a local butcher, but still, they couldn't survive. Even as this round of death solidified Silas's hatred for life, he did remember some joy from the vagabond animals whenever he fed them. Come and get it. Meat. And I mean meat. He missed the most mutated one most of all, often helping her to not getting muscled out of her share of food and building her a special litter box ramp because she had trouble getting into it. They all had very distinct personalities, and now they were gone. After again seeing so much pointless death, he wondered why they were taken, just born at the wrong time, at the wrong place. But then again, he knew it simply was. A couple of years after they were long buried and decomposed, he dug up their bones and precisely placed their respective remains in good tight wood boxes and kept in the dry part of the basement, each deceased pet's coffin marked with its own name. He wasn't even sure why he had interred them there. Sometimes, he would still speak to them while in the basement as he did laundry, imaging them playing, rolling, and purring, growing larger. For some itching reason in his slowly but increasingly unstable mind, Silas had to believe that surely, someday, they would come out and play again. Maybe it was just another recurring long-ago acid echo thought about the big little ones. Whatever they were supposed to be, he couldn't remember. He had just chalked all of that up to the nom and bad medication. Now The old two-story farmhouse, with its weathered details, surrounded by gnarled, aging oak trees, sat imposingly above the surrounding rolling cornfields well past the edge of town largely unnoticed near the dead end of Thornhill Road. The dilapidated place was permeated with mildew and dank smells. It could have really used some new paint or siding. Another layer of shingles on the sagging roof wouldn't hurt either. Green, now in his early 70s, would never see that happen. Now he was thankful for his railroad pension after 29 grindingly boring post-war years as a dusty rail switchyard dispatcher and loading coordinator. However, at pension time, it had paid to be a long-time member of the Brotherhood of Shortline Switchmen's Union, working the line from Yellowwood to the switchyard at the quarry pits for Dark Hollow Limestone and Aggregates in Lawrence County, almost an hour's drive away each way every day on the twisty US-50 through the Hoosier National Forest. The Bedford-based company was one of the oldest mining extraction operations in Indiana and probably still only one of a few in America capable of shipping product orders large enough to justify the cost of using rail transport, like back in the day when journeyman cutters hewed and shaped raw material for the Empire State Building. It'd have been good to see American resources still being used in America, he thought. Silas's retirement fund could keep him afloat for a few more years with the old farmhouse paid for and settled after his divorce from Sheila two decades ago not too long after he bought the place after being back at stateside, and he could continue to cash-farm most of his 40 rolling acres behind the house and adjacent small woods. But since Social Security may not last now, he thought it better just to try and keep things fixed up on the inside of the spacious, musty, remote house he had lived in for decades while he could. Besides, the prospect of ending up wasting away in a negligent VA hospital, or the last stop, the veteran's home up in West Lafayette, gave him good incentive for his tall, bulky and imposing old frame to try and stay productive and in shape despite his arthritis. His trips to the local VFW for drinking, storytelling and moral support were becoming more infrequent. The calls for human connection from other people in general and other vets in particular becoming more ephemeral. Today, a bright and balmy early autumn Saturday, Silas made some coffee from one of his many antiquated, American-made appliances. He had slammed some shots of cheap whiskey the evening before, though it didn't mix with his medication well. He felt it now, getting up uncharacteristically late around noon, pondering what was left of his afternoon. He was too disengaged and unsteady to ride his old Harley into town for some groceries and beer now. A shame, as lately. He had been receiving several disturbing calls from an anonymous person about his grandson Nathan. Not white from the sound of the guy, either. Pausing to think, in Silas's opinion, his young grandson was turning out to be a 22-year-old Zero. Big on talk, but short on action and understanding authority. His kind didn't last long back in the Delta, that's for sure. The now-directionalist, sullen kid managed to hold a second-shift job at Southern Quality Gear and Axles, where the non-union shop along Huron Road on the south side of hilly Yellowwood made torque hubs, axles, spindles, and other parts for multinational large machinery corporations. The gear used to be a damn good-paying job back in Silas's generation, where any work was scarce in this backwater part of Indiana. Still, while the Great Recession had screwed the working man's wages, health care benefits, and savings potential, it seemed many under-30s now were okay with that, as long as they could live off someone else. Along those lines, Nathan had been staying at the farmhouse when it suited him since he had become an adult and got sick of his mom's rules, giving Silas both some grief and rent. The old man knew his grandkid, his only living relative, had racked up numerous run-ins with the local cops during the past several years for petty crimes, but somehow had always managed to avoid any real jail time. He had learned nothing, despite Silas always bailing him out. However, now it seemed that, lately, his friends were looking for him with unusual urgency. The repetitive phone messages were simple and profane. Hey, where's the money? Where's the shit? Where'd these jokers even get this number? While the intrusive calls were disconcerting, Silas was nonetheless able to take care of himself and was well-armed. After all, having served in the military, enlisting and surviving three tours in Nam, one during the '68 Tet Offensive no less, well, whatever these punks threatened to do seemed like idle chat next to that. Green drank his coffee slowly and paused again to remember his last mission in 69, the ambush at Chu Prong, which ended up with many American servicemen dead, wounded, or left behind screaming and helpless waiting to be retrieved, while the retributional carnage committed by the North Vietnamese to their own kinsmen in the village after that engagement ending up being much worse for the locals. Green had already been on the end of his third tour, A smart and insightful young man who had no college deferment to keep him from the draft. He had simply accepted this repeating role as what life had dealt him. At least he must have some value in life to be able to keep coming back and kicking ass, right? Now as he thought reflectively, the carefully inlaid ceramic coffee mug he drank from suddenly jittered on the table as the loud shockwave of approaching F4s crept into his mind. The mug transformed into a military-issue metal drinking cup as he drank, with sounds of machine guns, smells of smoky cordite, and the oily napalm in the background, as his mind again involuntarily, drafted, ventured back into the past. The battle was not glorious enough to be remembered as an ambush. It was stupid luck for the G.I.'s bad luck. Really bad luck, a faint, distant, echoing voiceover shouted. Incoming! Another hot, fucking humid day in the late summer of 1969. Intel was wrong. Again. Recently promoted to E-8 Master Sergeant. Out of sheer attrition, he suspected, Silas Green saw little reward for his new rank as he humped his sweaty pack. His profanities keeping cadence with his steps up the hills and through the humid bush. As Alpha Company approached the Prong River and its little village across the bank with the same name, or close enough for the Americans, there were indeed no unguarded stockpiles of munitions in the supposedly friendly village to confiscate as planned. Just half of a Viet Cong battalion hanging around that had somehow gone unnoticed on radar and at HQ. After advancing downhill through impermeable brush and an initial hour of surprised firefight. Captain McGuinness initiated a retreat, but couldn't contact reinforcements because a gook was able to sneak up and take his face off with a grenade while the commander had gone down to the riverbank to get a clear radio signal. One forward observer, Flavin, a tall soldier with intense eyes covered by dusty spectacles, along with his squad, were ultimately able to get away uphill in the humid jungle and tried to clear a landing zone for a belated Huey exit to take whoever could make it to the top of the ridge, whenever that could happen. However, the rest of the men down there by the river defending their position were sitting ducks, and the only way out was up the exposed stone hill by the river or through nearby bottomland jungle where the Dinks were commencing a pincer movement between the village river crossing and the uplands two days of hidden firefights writhing or passed out guys bleeding while they all waited for hq to figure coordinates then figure a clear place for an lz an all-out airstrike could have been called in and would have effectively neutralized the enemy there sure enough but the small target area would have also surely killed the trapped u.s men and wiped out the innocent village too risky the leaders behind the lines thought as a now war-divided America was watching and scrutinizing every move of this gruesome chess match on network television nightly, the first video broadcast conflict in America. Death with dinner, then commercials for housewives on the importance of how to keep your gravy from getting too lumpy. Back in the bush, Green's own pinned down forces and the rest of Alpha Company was slowly being picked off, their bodies wilting and waiting for medevac choppers and reinforcements in the confusing bush while the North Vietnamese's MiG-17s prowled overhead in the always steamy and rain-filled clouds lurking to strafe them. As obscene as it was, not many of the wounded could be retrieved on the steep rocky slopes in the small belated window of opportunity for rescue. Some of the remaining Americans left behind and under fire on the rocky hill outcroppings and river silt had to live off of their own, or the nearby dead bodily fluids to survive another two or three days until they were later rescued or were simply picked up later as bodies to be retrieved. After some 98-degree days, the rotting corpses cooking on the angled stone outcropping emanated a putrid odor so strong that made men on both sides wretch whenever the breeze shifted, sometimes fatally giving away their positions. During the engagement, the worst Green suspected had happened to his young friend a corporal named Lenny Walentowitz, The large Polish 21-year-old had been a great football defensive end back in some Pennsylvania high school and understood team playing. Even in this chaotic environment, Master Sergeant Green had tried to mentor him with his even-handed and ugly experiences from prior tours on how to lead enlisted men. Walentowitz, now fueled on battle joy, adrenaline, and LSD, was valiantly fending off enemy fighters approaching the stone slope when he was shot directly in his bandolier, in which he had stocked with several phosphorus grenades. The subsequent explosion incinerated the young man and the nearby green got a hot piece of something on his forearm. Not metal, but melting, burning human flesh. What was left of Wolenowitz mercifully died a quick death. No burn unit in that part of the world perhaps not anywhere even in America at the time, could have saved him. Even so, the phosphorus embedded within his body would have ignited once exposed to oxygen, even if he had made it to the operating table. As the enemy drew closer and no way out for Green and the remaining men seemed inevitable, a mortar shell fell nearby, the concussion knocking Silas somewhat unconscious as the firefight drew nearer. A recent anti-war song bizarrely began to ring in his head. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why, whoopee, we're all gonna die. Perhaps so. In his dream state, he suddenly saw a strange Asian specter drawing close and looming over his incapacitated body, oblivious to and unaffected by the carnage happening about him. He came out of nowhere, not dressed in military garb or even armed rather just a ragged old villager man with a broad conical hat. By his side was a small mangy house cat, Siamese by the look of it. Both characters seemed surrealistically out of place here, especially given the man's, well, confidence. The little cat was not rattled by the loudness of the war in carnage either. What? Are you here to kill me or save me? He heard himself laugh, as if to answer. The wrinkled, stunted, bent-over man suddenly evolved into a nine-foot, brilliantly adorned being, his muscular shoulders four feet wide, like a giant Genghis Khan with a Fu Manchu mustache and long, shiny, dark hair, but still sporting his hat. The cat meowed softly at first, then its sound grew louder and deeper as it enlarged into a beautifully huge, seething beast. It still resembled the house cat, though now the size of a lion. It looked closely and inquisitively at Silas, as if to devour him, then the cat stepped back and nodded, bellowing a roar of agreement with some eternal purpose gestured by the angel villager. Somehow, none of the approaching soldiers were even aware of these very strange interlopers. Random bullets ricocheted off of the large man harmlessly, as if they were made of paper maché balls thrown by second graders. Amazingly, the monstrous Siamese cat did the speaking, saying something like, Not let die now, to the towering man, who then nodded and turned around for a moment, gesturing at the encroaching North Vietnamese with his enormous hand. The otherwise affable-looking supernatural being lost his smile for a moment and gave a look to the encroaching enemy like something Silas would never want to confront anywhere. He uttered one word, or rather, A loud commanding sound like a chorus of bears, and the ground suddenly reverberated throughout the valley. Then, a cloud of translucent fog issued forth from his right palm, and it somehow wafted through the humid air directly toward the NVA men, enveloping them with a swarm of something like flying worm-sized snakes with sharp-like teeth. Whatever unearthly creatures the huge being cursed them with, screaming voices ensued in the jungle as the hardened enemy hysterically and instantly retreated away toward the river, bodies dropping as flesh was devoured right through their uniforms. Laying on his back and obvious to the surrounding carnage, Silas asked, What's your names? The shining titan, who simply restored his smile and shrugged, divulged nothing. The cat impatiently continued to speak in English with a broken Asian accent. You not able to pronounce names. Call him Intervention, me Harbinger. We hear so you and others live now. We show local witches who in charge of valley too. They cast spells so you all die. Intervention say they wake up dead tomorrow, but you not, <laughs> but you listen up. Someday, holy one, maybe send help at the end of you days you care for big little ones when no one else care. So, you given power to call on them, or what look like them. Maybe it make up for what you people do to pollute world, make mutants and deformities of creation, eh? Maybe they all come back for judgment on those who harm you at earthly reckoning." The supernatural feline reiterated its frustration. Others all over Earth dying, cry out for help, but we here to help you instead. Master have big plans for you, but you no follow. The cat thing bristled then, squinted and pointed a paw at Silas. You made to help people too, Silas Green. Could if you try. Warning we also share. If you not get over hate and not love others. You life be cut short do soldier. You may not remember the day, but you last decision be only that really counts. Last day come upon you like all men, come like lightning. Be ready. Holy One, and us, count still on you then. I not have faith in you like intervention. He think you change. Intervention gently nodded and reached down to pet the huge feline, as if to calm it down. It actually started to purr. Remember, we count on you. We waiting. Delivered from what? Was I supposed to die here? Who are the big little ones? Then, with some far-off trumpet sound and unearthly song, the supernatural beings suddenly looked up and respectfully stood still, then faded away and disappeared in front of Silas. His reality replaced instantly back with only the sights and smells of war as his bizarre encounter rang in his ears. Green was still lying on his back, dazed as the jungle foliage swayed over him and the random shots continued in the distance he noticed his small but numerous shrapnel wounds were suddenly all healed and gone, something else he would forget over the years. A giant cat who could speak? A man single-handedly repelling the NVA with flying worms? The already exhausted green passed out. As the sun set beautifully in the hazy river valley, several U.S. soldiers miraculously made it through the tall, humid brush where Green and a few other live bodies were still laying, moaning. The choppers had at last landed at the top of the hill, clearing to the coordinates that Flavin had prescribed, even as gunfire still bristled. A private and his colleague broke through the bush, then slapped and probed the prostrate and dirty Green, seeing his dog tags. Come on, Sarge, wake up. This is the last train out of Dodge, and we're getting on it. Going home, man. They struggled to carry his large, limp body over the slimy forest bottom growth and out of the last of the battle as he mumbled about spiritual redemption, flying shark worms, and huge talking cats. Man, did this guy get his bell rung or what? The cynical medic later laughed as the chopper was loaded and quickly powered up. As the motors became louder and the terrain became thankfully more distant, a young black banged up private from the group, who had searched the forest for survivors, was more introspective and noticed. Lucky SOB. Look, ain't no scratches on him, and yet ain't almost no one else made it out of that part of the bush to the LZ alive. Captain said we had time for one more trip looking for survivors, and somehow we stumbled across this dude, just laying there like he passed out sunbathing. It's like the gooks must just taken off or something. Yeah. He chanted some butt-kicking jive specific to his regiment so they could take credit. A third young man, his intense facial features coupled with a strong southern accent, chimed in somberly to correct the situation over the rotor noise. Not all of them. Guys from our squad saw some skeletons downstream with ripped-up North Vietnamese uniforms. Oppenheimer saw him running away when he headed up to the LZ said they were screaming and something right out of the air was eating their flesh right to the bone, and it weren't like napalm, man. I think we gotta be glad we're getting out of here now. Man, what'll the CIA think of next? Back to the field hospitals, sedatives and painkillers applied. Green's tour of duty was ironically to be over in six weeks anyway, so he was transferred after the short hospital stay to spend the rest of it doing desk work in Da Nang he somehow never saw the cursed jungle again, except in his dreams. A jungle that kept growing in his mind, it seemed. Silas awoke from his daydream now, always the same, vaguely grasping at memories. Just a concussion hallucination, right? It's time he need to quit thinking about Prong. The conflict remained now in his head. Now those soldiers are left behind on your watch and you let them stay in the meat grinder, sergeant. What makes up for that? Stop it. wasn't my fault. If we had won, holding that hill and taking a village that close to the border could have turned something our way for the war, man. In the end, almost 80% of Alpha Company was officially dead, or MIA, trying to take the little village of Chuprong and its supposed repository of arms and food. Many of the rotting American bodies never would or could be recovered. And of course, during 1969, official information from the military didn't necessarily mean conveying all of Vietnam's political or physical carnage of the day to the American media or families. So even today, Silas did not want to talk about those events. As time passed, he indeed forgot about or blocked out the encounter with the bizarre supernatural beings who saved his life. No one would have believed him anyway, right? Back at the Saturday in his house, the old landline rang again. Silas hesitantly picked it up, his wrist starting to throb again with arthritis. Yo, is Nathan there? No, who the hell is this? None of your fucking business, old man. We want our money. He's out there cooking us stuff we know. He owes us a lot of shit, and we're coming over to collect. It'll be wise to leave now, because we ain't going away till he pays up. Got it? No, friend, you don't get it. Nathan is out of town. Maybe you should be too, ghetto jackass. Now leave me alone. Some cursing and threats on the other end of the line, then the old man hung up. Silas grabbed the stairway railing and slowly went upstairs to check his arsenal. Loaded Colt 45 caliber, AR-15, Ithaca Auto Mag 10-gauge shotgun, his favorite. Yeah, that should be a deterrent. He kept them locked up from Nathan so he wouldn't steal and sell them, but maybe it was time to take one of them out of the vault and keep downstairs now, just in case. Nonetheless, around dusk, the Chrysler 300M with its gaudy paint scheme and 20-inch chrome rims pulled up to Silas's long winding driveway and parked just off the road. The obscenity-laced rap music booming out of it had been silenced a few hundred yards ago. Its occupants were the stuff of 20-something losers. The car's driver was local creep Derek 12-pack haymaker who had a rap sheet since sixth grade which included battery, theft, and dealing controlled substances. He had been a friend of Nathan's since high school when the two decided getting ahead in life was a better living, making and selling dope. Neither lazy at their passion, Nathan and Derek had learned together how to cook some of the best crystal in Southern Indiana, inspired by Breaking Bad, perhaps. Either way, Derek felt betrayed over prospects of promising a large sale of product last week in town that he was sure in his drug-induced paranoia that Nathan, Iceman Green, was cooking instead in his grandfather's basement out in the boonies and sitting on it. On top of this problem, there was also a matter of a pound of gleaming white stash gone from the rear room of his trailer. Who else could have known where it was and gotten to it, right? Meanwhile, scrawny Thomas Tway Renfro and his big-boned, scantily-clad girlfriend, Natisha Johnson, who had both moved from a closed-down Gary apartment complex with their little boy to keep receiving HUD benefits, were along for the ride. As the Windy City area had closed its public housing compounds, a diaspora of welfare recipients had relocated all over small-town Indiana with their hands, or their middle fingers, held out. Now all too acquainted with the Midwest small-town drug scene, the couple needed a meth fix soon and were now both fidgeting in the back seat jiggling his scrawny leg in impatience. Natisha flicked her smoke out the car window. She preferred letting the guys do the brawling if the opponents were big enough, but despite her short stature, she could throw down some punches as good as the boys when it came down to it, and most men didn't want to hit a girl, much less one who had once thrown her cousin across the room in one fell swoop. Zach Kringle, the youngest at 20 and Derek's pet as a result, rode shotgun in the hopped-up Chrysler and stroked his spindly beard, wondering why Haymaker hadn't brought more than one pistol for this job. But then he probably figured the old man wouldn't be hard to be made to talk. Still, never hurts to bring an extra piece for a job. Zach, who had the weekend off from his construction job, was originally a practical kid who had succumbed to the meth party allure and, all of a sudden, had financial obligations of his own, to certain persons back at his now mostly Hispanic mobile home park. On top of that, his frisky 14-year-old girlfriend, Chloe, had said something last week about missing her period after enjoying another encounter in his car's back seat last month. The age difference between them, at least as far as Indiana's consent law was concerned, was considered a felony, and all he could think of right now was, this trip had better pay off, homies, cause I gotta go. Besides, while he and Haymaker were cool, there would be no love lost getting away from the meth cook's control freak attitude. Yeah, taking Nathan's crystal and getting out of town sounded good right now. He tucked his knife into his boot as his head bobbed rhythmically in anticipation of violence. The consensus among them was... That bastard Nathan would be coming off of some ice now, oh yes. As individuals, they had all done some daytime breaking and entering, but this was their first job together. Derek wasted no time being in charge as the one with his superior brains, height, and muscles the others lacked. Besides, his issue with Nathan had become personal. He couldn't be seen as outmaneuvered or outsmarted, which he clearly had been here. He stroked his almost-shaven head and announced, Okay, I know the ice man's cooking in the basement. He gotta be. Ain't nobody else gonna be around, so we knock out the old man and get my, uh, our stash. You know, Zach interjected, maybe we don't just kill Nathan when we see him. I'm thinking of something more interesting, taking him out for a little trip in the country, say, 20 miles into Hoosier National Forest. Lots of places there to put some pain out of that piece of shit without anyone hearing the screams. The group laughed with the hackles of stoners, the idea replete with possibilities. Derek focused. Okay, let's go. Leave your phones in the car. I don't want no stupid stuff going off to give us away, okay? Zach, the sledgehammer's in the trunk, man. You break the door down. Ah, uh, okay, but why do you want me to do it, man? "'Cause I'm busy carrying the gun, man." Zack was a little thick and needed the obvious stated often and occasionally with some steel mixed in the words. The creeps got out of the car, careful not to slam the doors with Natisha standing beside it to stand guard. She'd come in later if they found any crystal for sure. The guys quietly approached the house, its dingy windows reflecting the day's waning light. A breeze rustled over the tall midsummer corn covering the rolling country landscape. No traffic on this old neglected gravel road. No one around within earshot. Perfect. Zack wasted no time with knocking. The sledge broke the aging front door off its rusty hinges in seconds. The gang burst in, catching Silas totally off guard in his grimy easy chair. Haymaker ground his spent cigarette on Silas's carpet and drawled loudly. Hey, old boy, where's Nathan? We wasn't kidding. Told you he'd come here because he owes us. I know he's cooking meth in your basement. Might as well help us out and we'll be gone, aight? What part Oh of fuck off? Don't you understand, punk? I haven't seen Nathan in days. This is my house. Now get out. No, it ain't gonna go down like that, Grandpa. We're taking what's ours. Get him. Zack and Tway suddenly brandished their baseball bats, which they used on Silas before he could even stand up. They beat him over the course of the next minute, breaking many of the bones in his aging body and left him on the floor gasping. This was a little more drama than Haymaker had intended to inflict. Maybe we should have smoke that last bowl. Oh well. You want to tell us where he is now? I. Guess i will just run downstairs and get to shit myself. Wouldn't go down there if I were you, young man, Silas slurred and groaned, suddenly seeing a vision of things growing, moving, changing downstairs. What, the lab gonna blow up or something? I'm fucking going down there. How you gonna stop me, old man? Who's gonna help you now? At that time, there was a faint but distinguishable thud in the basement then several others, deep and resonant. The buzzed intruders did not attenuate themselves to it, but suddenly, Silas recalled a long-ago promise and saw his endgame coming into play, as there would be no way out of this situation and the gang would wait to finish him off. The big little ones. (laughs) They're coming. I know it. I feel them. Hungry for meat. Your meat. Derek laughed mockingly and opened the large old oak door. The stairway into the house's basement was musty and creaky and there was a funny odor rising up as well. Since Derek's sense of smell was trashed from using meth, he didn't bother to realize this and he was too hopped up to be intimidated. He smiled back at his posse, brandishing his thirty-two caliber pistol and disappearing into the darkness only one light bulb in the ceiling illuminated the dank cavernous basement you'll be back with the goods then we go into town and party if the ice man's hiding down there he's done too haymaker excitedly said as he descended the ancient stairs you hoo, nathan just stop by and say hi man he sang off key as derek tried to acclimate to the lack of light downstairs he realized there was no meth lab, nor trace of any precursors of drug production. Nathan may have been cooking here, but no one would have ever known it. He had been had. Small trickles of light came in through the dingy window wells where the side rooms contained the ancient and huge converted coal furnace, the water heater, washer and dryer room, and a rotting brick arch wall separating a space with some rotting old furniture while moisture wicked and collected onto the part of the floor that was cracking concrete, then into some half-plugged floor drain. Four little very old wood boxes lay in line on a table in the corner, all broken open. They all had names scrawled on them, indistinguishable now. What a creepy shithole, he thought as he coughed in the mold-filled air. This ain't right. A moment later, the sounds started quickly. First a small grunt, then growling that became very loud, joined by horrific hissings amidst the dark. We back? Where we been? Miss Basement is our basement. What live meat doing here? This one not smell like bowl filler. Smell like beer and hate and wrong things. We go share meat now. Save some for Gracie. She hiding in corner like always. I smell more meat up where Master stays. Rusty, we get our fill. He be proud we kill meat for him. You only think of food, Big Jack. We need to see Master. If he okay, then maybe play. We big enough to play with anyone now. Shut up, Pixie. You always try to be nice, and steal attention. This meat not nice. The mewling and growling speech between the creatures was lost on Derek, who shot off around reflexively, not hitting the things in the shadows, the small bullet sticking in the dirt part of the floor. He didn't notice the monstrous forms circling behind him until they attacked. In the living room, sounds emanated through the vents from something being tossed around, ripped apart, then a scream. Natisha who had previously been standing guard for any cars driving by the house, was now killing time in the foyer when she heard the shrieking sounds. She strode over to yell down into the basement where the sounds had come from. Hey, Derek, you all right, man? Silence answered her. What's down there, you old bastard? Shortly, what was left of Derek hobbled up to the basement doorway in shock and minus most of his left calf, his foot dangling by sinew. Now, Tway, Zack, and Natisha went from badass bangers to horrified, overgrown children in seconds. Haymaker could only gurgle, "Ah, uh, a big, yeah, big, it fucking hurts, hell." He tried to crawl like a bloody rag and shut the basement door, but was pulled back down the stairs by something. His screams accompanied by breaking bones and subsonic growls. Silas continued to laugh, no mirth to his voice at all. His ribs were too damaged for a good guffaw, but he managed. As the noises from the basement grew louder, it came back to him. A faint message through the years rekindled. Chew prong, a warning, and something about big little ones. Impossible, as he had buried them all. Yet, he still realized they were here now. And somehow as pissed off at these kids as he was. I told you. You had a choice to stay away. Could have just left us alone. Then you had your chance to leave and piss that away. Shouldn't have been here to begin with. Just like the Nam. Too late now. This is their place now. Oh yes. They've been waiting. Yeah, now they come. Watch this. (laughs) Silas turned his bloodied head toward the basement and called out with what effort he had left. Meat. And I mean meat. Come and get it. The sounds from the basement were coming closer and quickly now, the steps creaking under an incredible weight. The growling continued, then the mutant beasts emerged quickly, almost smashing the door off its hinges in the process. One had Derek's dripping flesh in its mouth like a prized bird or intrusive rodent to present to its master. They had wasted no time making what was left of the self-indulgent meth-head pay for being an idiot and a thief, and now his remaining flesh was instantly torn up right before the rest of the gang's unbelieving eyes. The monsters appeared in form as simple house cats, only each of these animals were inexplicably over 300 pounds, the largest being around 400 pounds of girth. Somehow a resurrection of Silas's beloved pets, all the companionship left before him in his mind over the years, now back with vengeance on their enhanced cat minds, Rusty, Big Jack, and Pixie Cat, oh yes, and poor Gracie, wherever she was. Silas kept laughing and gestured to the intruders even as he started to spit up blood. Meaty meat. Go get it. The old familiar call for fresh food resonated happily in the cat's ears as they wasted no time taking turns pouncing on the intruders. Big Jack, a shy waddling tabby who had trouble fitting through the basement doorway, deferentially followed Rusty an assertive striped tiger mix with an unnaturally reddish fur whose strong tail wagged with a life of its own. If there was an issue among the cats, such as food, he was the one who would settle it. Rusty's skull had mutated into something with fangs like a saber-toothed tiger, now like a pair of kitchen knives being welded into his skull to fit his primal attitude. If Zack had simply stayed still, he may have survived and gotten away, but in his childish bravado, he swung his knife around to shank them and swaggered toward the cats. Come on, bitches, I feed you my pit bull. His aggressive gestures sent the males into a frenzy, hissing and ears set back. One blindsided him, then both easily knocked him to the floor with feline quickness. Before he realized it, he discovered that not only was his blade missing, but also most of his right arm. He shrieked as he gazed upon the bloody muscle strands left angling. Then they came for the new toy again, claws batting and throwing the meat around like a cornered mouse until lumbering Big Jack, the largest and always the hungriest, could no longer resist the calls of his stomach. He meowed a suggestion to Rusty and they both lunged to take turns stripping Zack to the bone as he screamed and watched himself die. His eyes, the only flesh left in his head, Tway fared no better, as a monstrous calico with perfectly modeled colors was now crouching in front of him, docile for one moment, cocking her head and extending her arm gently, as if asking for attention with a questioning bellowing meow. Pixie was beautiful, except that her paws were hugely enlarged, even for her size, mutated like large frying pans for feet with six-inch claws. With this large of a prey, she couldn't decide if she wanted to eat or play with it darn it she was the more docile one of the group but not seeing a response now an instinctive growl and wiggle in her hindquarters went through pixie as she now dove to use her scoop shoveled size paws to tear out his belly toy screamed as he could see his own steaming guts being devoured right out of him Natisha heard the screams of her friends as she cowered near the door the cats all now closed in on her if she moved The monster felines would get her. If she didn't, they'd still probably get her. There was no way out, and this old guy knew it. Nice kitties. The girl who expected to receive a drug bonus here after this break-in carefully rose off of the floor, walking slowly toward the door. She didn't notice the smell of her own urine or its feel on her wet jeans. Just as Natisha went to swing the front door open, Pixie Cat made her move again sinking her oversized claws into the human's back, easily stripping Natisha's flesh as she was thrust backward with a grunt. The two other cats joined in, tearing up or devouring most of the young woman's body in minutes. Rusty protectively carried a chunk of the girl's torso with his huge teeth to the living room corner for future dining. Silas lay on the floor and checked the blood pouring out of him, unable to do anything but witness the human carnage with both revulsion and satisfaction. They look just like pulled pork. The three creatures then nonchalantly passed what was left of the girl's steaming carcass and stopped to examine Silas laying on the floor. Pixie gave a forlorn meow at the sight of the bowl filler, knowing he was bloody and dying. He reached to caress the giant pets one last time, only to withdraw his arm in pain. Big Jack gave him a slobbery but gentle lick on his forehead. Silas was afraid he may wish to flop down and cuddle. Go outside. Outside. Best for you to go now. Where's Gracie? Didn't she make it here? Rusty swatted his large paw as if to say he didn't care. She was still somewhere in the basement. She got all the attention, even now. The cats still knew outside was a command not to be questioned, and they obediently pushed through the open front door unabated, wearily looking around and taking in the sense of the outdoors they hadn't seen in years. Scary, beautiful freedom at last. They stopped to look back at Silas as if to pay respects, somehow knowing their surreal task was completed. Upon the porch, Big Jack and Pixie Cat busily sniffed each other's anuses, then chirped something to each other as if to say goodbye before wandering off in different directions. Rusty stopped briefly beyond the front door to bathe his multicolored coat, as if indignant about the mess he had made. He shook off the matter on his coat, its swirls of caramel white and brown soiled by the blood of his feast. Huge, cunning, and intelligent, he then strode off with direction and purpose. More meat. At his size, species wouldn't much matter. Damn human meat god in way of bowl filler not be nice, show them, have full belly. Bowl filler been good, but smell like he dying. I live, get out, be smart, survive. The usually prim and proper pixie promptly stopped to stretch and relieve herself in the yard. With abandon, she suddenly meowed, flopped and rolled around elsewhere, preening herself from the human group she had just indulged in, rolling on and enjoying the new sensation of warm grass for a moment before disappearing across the road to... somewhere... Her oversized paws made her gallop and lope a bit. Sure, someone take me in, feed me like filler. I be good. Me love meat if they nice, not smell to them like Rusty Hate or Jack Lazy. Still my brothers, sorry for little Gracie, she not walk right, may not get out, us all different now somehow, just want find home with food and warm sun patch to sleep on. Big Jack wandered up to Silas's aging Harley Road King, still parked on the concrete stepping stones by the gravel driveway, then territorially rubbed his huge girth up against it, which sent the heavy touring bike over its kickstand and tumbling onto its side, loudly crushing its windshield, chrome crash bar, and the right-side floorboard. He hissed and clawed at it and then, embarrassed, lumbered off around the rear of the house and disappeared away under the humid, fading daylight into Silas's pastoral cornfields and rolling woods. Time for a nap. Sorry we not all together. Many meat show up and fight Bow filler. Make good dinner. I go on. Find more bow fillers. Be good to them. We'll miss Fixie and Gracie, but need food. Free now. Rusty, not boss of me. They do what they want. More meat for me now, I get out. Meanwhile, Silas continued to laugh as he crawled to the kitchen and stretched to get his final hit of painkillers out of the medication drawer in the kitchen. The bleed out from his blows would be slow but complete soon enough. This he accepted. Maybe if he could get to his cordless phone on the counter. <laughs> meat! Meat for you everywhere! Go, my friends! They were actually real again, and now we're free, and perhaps finally so was he. Silas didn't hear Nathan's old truck pull into the driveway just then. The lanky, tattooed young man barged through the door with a small thirty-two caliber pistol drawn, and upon viewing the carnage exclaimed, What the fuck happened? Hey, where's Haymaker? That's his car out there. Are you okay, Grandpa? No, I'm not okay. You need to call 911 now. I've fallen in. I can't get up as they say. Your friends, those jives and a couple of skinhead losers, came here looking for you. He hacked some blood onto his shirt. <laughs> they ain't here now, as you can see. Want to tell me what this is about? I ain't got long to listen, boy. Nathan looked around, knowing his scheme all along. The gang had been here looking for him all right. He had been preparing the opportunity for himself all along. Okay, he had ripped off one bag and a small fortune in precursors from Haymaker's trailer, whatever. Now the meth had been made at his other house, and the greedy stoned hoods he called friends, and now had to get rid of, had played right into it, all the way. He'd make some calls tonight after he cooked some more back at his clandestine apartment, and he'd have some money, oh yeah. And speaking of money, no, no I don't. You ain't gonna make it, are you, Grandpa? Look really bad. Well, I could call 911, but you know, if you happen to die before the ambulance makes it out here, I get the house, a free place to live, and Haymaker and those douches get the blame. Just like I planned. Cause guess what? He squatted down beside his grandpa, giving him a light pat on the shoulder, a tiny grin on his pale face. I was behind it all. Punked them into thinking I ripped them off. Didn't take much effort for those guys to miss a bag. Got them stoked to come here, look for my dope, then do you in while they're looking for me. Win-win, man. I figure somebody in life owes me and I'm thinking that's how it'll go down. He stood up, smile gone. Sorry, Grandpa. This is my only chance to get ahead. You know it. I know it. Hell, I'll bet those retards couldn't even find my stash. He chortled briefly. Wow, not sure what you did here. Look at this fucking mess, Nathan tittered. My gang is gone and you gotta answer for this now too. Thank God be taking my stuff and be going now. So Silas growled slowly in response. They're doing a home invasion looking to get some product from you here that doesn't exist druggies who try to kill me while there's blood everywhere, and now ain't no witnesses to see you going away. You show up later all innocent and get everything from my estate, and you don't have to do the dirty work. <laughs> Just a mourning relative wanting to settle an old man's estate after a tragic break-in. That's what you'll tell the cops while you load up my life's belongings, right? Nathan's face had grown even more stony a meth-head caricature with his shaved head, spindly goatee, and neck tattoo. He thought remotely and responded simply, Yeah, that's good. Better than what I came up with, man. Silas managed to use what energy he had left to fill his next words with cold rage. You little ungrateful bastard. I sacrificed everything for you and our country and so did your dad and now jerry's gone what are you thinking nathan spat out matching his grandfather's own voice in ice i'm thinking tough luck dad never give a damn about me it was always ooh the next assignment in the army it was ooh getting himself a new girlfriend to make mom jealous now it don't matter though And I think your time's done, too. And in the meantime, your life has become a waste. Nathan started to hiss a reply, but Silas cut in. Anyway, your drug buddies made their choices. Now they're all long gone. Look, they're all over the floor. You'll reap what you sow, too, boy. (laughs) Whatever. I've been waiting long enough and it's about damn time I get what's coming to me. All your shit, Grandpa. And I mean now. Little jackass, he started to look like a sullen toddler, whining and waving his gun around in childish annoyance. All the better. Oh, yes. Silas could not laugh anymore. His ribs hurt too much, but he managed to smirk as his vision darkened slightly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You'll get everything that's coming to you, Nathan, and I mean now." At that time, Silas spied Gracie, the invalid, always falling behind, finally silently and asymmetrically ambling out of the basement into the room, elegant tail twitching and three eyes vehemently focused on the distress happening to the bowl filler as if waiting for instructions from her tormented master. His hideously deformed cats, the monster he loved, was half the size of its mutated resurrected littermates due to its afflictions. But she silently waited and slithered as best it could into position in the shadows. Now Gracie could only think, deduce, protect Silas. See, meat fighting with bow filler. It's smelling family, I know, but it hurting master bow filler. Me should die. Rusty, Jack, Pixie not here to help. It not right they leave me behind all the time, but we'll miss them. I never move right or keep up, but I smarter, not bear. I stay here while they go away to outside. No, I live and Bowfiller live. Creator make Bowfiller to come and save us. Creator make me to come help Bowfiller now. Hope he helped me move right, yes." The setting sun with its warm golden late summer angle and reddish background was low in the sky but still hit Silas in the eyes as he lay splayed out on the floor. He again heard the corn rustle, sweet as a mother's song, below the rolling hills in the distance through his open screen window, knowing he'd never see it harvested. Silas was having trouble breathing at this time through his bloody exhalations pain burning in his broken bones and sensed his time was running out. One of his old Rare Earth albums had still been playing on the dusty old Pioneer turntable in the background, the stylus on the worn vinyl inexplicably unscathed throughout this entire melee. Well, fee-fi-fo-fo-fum, now look out, baby, cause here I come. Green finally had to rest his head on the wooden floor, but turned his face toward his grandson to now offer his only heir a final choice. Tell you what, Nathan, he rasped. Yes, you can have the house, the guns, the road king, the tractor, and whatever tools are in the barn, too. I have $5,000 in cash upstairs in the dresser and grandma's antique silverware in the kitchen cabinets. You can have all that now and go, or you can help me get to a hospital right now. What do you say? What's more important to you? The inebriated young man pondered for a moment. Meeting his grandfather's glare, he leered, I'm taking the stuff. Sorry, I need it now, and I'll be gone. Who's going to even miss you? The cat monster was silently positioned behind Nathan now, seething through its two mouths and stalking on its deformed limbs. I hope I get to you before they do, cause that's how I planned it, Rare Earth happily warned. Nathan slowly raised the handgun as Silas cackled again while his body protested. (laughs) Okay, so you made your choice. At least you did make a decision by yourself for once in your life, you worthless fuck. Therefore, everything I have is all yours now. I only have one more thing to say to you. Meat. And I mean meat. Nathan fumbled to pull the trigger on the cheap handgun he had just bought as Gracie responded to the call and did her best to pounce on the young man from behind, her large head embedding itself in the back of his neck and pulling him to the floor as the trigger was pulled. The bullet missed Silas and careened into nothing but old scarred-up hardwood floor. Even with her smaller stature and deformities, a now 250-pound cat was still much more than a match for a stoned 170-pound human and she easily ripped into his juggler vein to finish him off. As Nathan bled out and fell onto the already blood-stained carpet, guns strewn away beyond his reach, he gurgled and cursed the former small kitten he could have killed in the dump when he was a child. Two-faced freak! But in his last seconds, he was now no more than a cripple himself as he tried to crawl and stumble along the floor, incapacitated and equalized in Gracie's world as she loomed over him growling. She slobbered and breathed heavily with a venomous sound, hissing out of her weird-looking small side mouth, which, at least as Silas heard it, sounded condemningly like, Meow, bad, bad. She lunged to finish Nathan off, then the world went black for him. Silas was fading fast and he knew it. He'd have to think of something. Gracie, get me the phone off the counter. Phone? Gracie looked up in familiar curiosity, then hobbled into the kitchen looking for some human object. She spent effort being able to climb onto the counter and then just batted everything onto the floor, dirty dishes breaking and all, and looked back as if for further instructions when she batted a small black thing off the counter toward him. A toy? Silas exclaimed weakly. That's it, Gracie. Bring it here. Of course, there was no treat to receive, just bloodshed and carnage now, starting to stink within the farmhouse. But if Silas had to punk his pets to save his own life, then under the circumstances, this was okay. Her slobbery, large mouth proudly deposited his cordless landline phone near Silas, who wasted no time dialing 911 as he started to fade out. Gracie licked him protectively, waited, and cocked her head for some imaginary treat and then upon not receiving it, she slowly resigned herself to shuffle away to the front room, out onto the porch, and very slowly hobbled out behind the house and into the trees. As the cats faded away into the surrounding farm, first responders' sirens soon became louder and into Silas's damaged head as he remembered one sentence from long ago. You last decision, the only one that really counts. As the next morning passed at Silas Green's farmhouse, Buchanan County Detective Mark Del Santo was brought in to get images and evidence of the most gruesome and bizarre crime scene he had ever been assigned to, and watching a lot of cops sitting outside getting sick. Despite his experience and even-handedness, he had no idea what to put, or not, into his report. On top of that, he'd have a tough time keeping down his greasy breakfast from Millie's diner, His colleague, Deputy Sherman, had just reacted like some of the emergency responders who had shown up last night to take Silas Green away. They had all ralphed up upon opening the door to the old man's house. And who wouldn't? Five young people's bodies were inside the warm putrid building, stripped of flesh and mangled like rotting fertilizer. One discharged handgun, two baseball bats. No way this carnage could have happened under normal circumstances. Del Santo, a born again Catholic, had the satisfaction of knowing that while Green had somehow called 911 and as the ambulance had taken what was left of him to IU Southern Hospital, one of them, a young EMT named Caleb Meyer, had managed to share Christ with the old man. Stubborn, hateful Silas had received him as his Lord and Savior in the ambulance and in the process confessed a multitude of sins that would have made most priests blush. He also bizarrely wanted to know if the big little ones were all right. Caleb didn't have an answer for that, but said yes and not to worry. Silas Green passed away from blood loss and trauma before they even wheeled him into the hospital. While Del Santo knew he could never publicly relate what had happened, at least he'd make sure the police crime scene footage wouldn't end up on YouTube. The sheriff and mayor of Yellowwood certainly wanted this situation to remain a non-media event, and it simply became referred to as a drug-induced euphoric altercation of violence to shine light on the meth scourge of Buchanan County. The families of the victims could not be given any official explanations for the gruesome situation, and their perplexed civil trial lawyers couldn't make a case for some entitling restitution without any living witnesses to suck money from. Ultimately, a sheriff's sale for the old farmhouse, which would be demolished, and its land would be quickly mandated given no heirs stepping forth to claim the property. However, a couple days after the event, Del Santo went back to the house to do follow-up investigation work and gather whatever forensic evidence was still available. His guys had wiped the place clean. Funny, no trace of drugs, no sense of this being a drug deal gone bad. Still no evidence of the Thorn Road killers and whatever kind of weapons they had used on Nathan Green and the other punks. No rival gang graffiti tags and why stage an ambush at an old vet's house? Silas Green had been clearly bludgeoned and knifed, but no giant bite or claw marks as with the unfortunate others in the house. This mystery could never probably be explained, let alone solved, he realized. Meanwhile, he stopped to wipe his mind from the gruesome images from the scene, thinking about Trisha and the kids probably outside playing with Denali the Husky now. Supposedly getting the yard cleaned up for next weekend's upcoming barbecue for some of the guys on the force the week before they would all have to work security for the annual tourist hectic Yellow Wood Foliage Fest. The only time most outsiders knew the town was even on the map. As Mark went outside to examine the giant claw marks on the tank of the smashed Harley still to be towed away, there by the back of the house, he saw them. The cop rubbed his eyes. A nine-foot-tall Asian man with a large oriental hat was sitting back serenely whittling something as a huge feline regally sat nearby in the shade by the foundation. They both then looked up at him. Four odd-looking little house cats were cuddled around the visitors. One had two large fangs, another had oversized feet and claws, the third was, well, very large, and the smallest one was simply a hobbling mutation. The huge cat sat down, spiraling around a few times to get comfortable, then spoke with broken English and a deep Vietnamese accent. What you looking for, authority man? You not understand what happened here? One man, Salis Green, get mercy and grace. Others not. They could have, at their chance. You never solve case. Not human possible. You wanna know? Big little ones here are responsible. Ha! Just little cats. Who know? Who believe it? 2 face runt with stagger. Man think not worth keeping. But creator use her slowness to protect Green at the right moment. Keep him alive at right time when others gone. No one else think of that. Gracie meowed with her large mouth as if in agreement as the others play fought over what was left in the mysteriously provided water and food bowls. Have idea. Maybe you adopt and take care uh, of big little ones, yes? Deserve better than die in polluted ground. Could get them to pet doctor, make normal. Could live for years. Not need go back to soil so fast like before. Uh, okay, sure. I'll take them today if that will make you guys happy. Hey, doesn't he speak? Mark asked nervously pointing to the villager angel in the bizarre conversation. Ha, if you hear him speak, you die. What, talking giant cat, not enough to get your attention, mortal? The laid back intervention just smiled at that, petting the mercurial, impatient harbinger as his giant tail became a bushy exclamation mark. Del Santos suddenly started to grasp the spiritual aspect of this unreal conversation. But the hard part to swallow was why someone like Silas Green, a hardened man he had known for years, had such mercy and protection shown to him through whatever means while the others in the house, including Green's own grandson, had shared a wrathful fate somehow. Maybe because when it came down to life's very end, however gruesome it came down when the light was being shut off at the end of the tunnel, someone like Silas would be one to respond to a final offer of salvation, while others wouldn't but if these two were some sort of guardian angels and the cats some bizarre incarnation as Green's protectors, this was all too far out to Mark. So after all of this, life's not fair after all, is it? Mark muttered contemplatively. No, and you be grateful for that. You, churchman. why not understand? Grace, getting what you not deserve. Mercy, not getting what you do deserve. Be glad someone gets saved before they die that all you can know now who know we may need visit you too sometime too a breeze picked up and some leaves scattered as the group of displaced resurrected pets marched toward mark and sat before him expectantly the little deformed cat with three eyes and two mouths lumbered toward mark he heard it swore he heard it softly and clearly articulate out of its little mouth Remember both, filler, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. The two unearthly beings disappeared then while DeSanto just stood there, freaking out. I hope you enjoyed tonight's tale, and I mean meat, by Eric Fisher. Eric Fisher is a landscape site designer and engineering drafter during the day and is a 70s style rock guitarist who writes music and fiction for recreation and moral purpose. He has composed or is in the process of completing several short stories and novellas in the supernatural fiction and alternate history realm. Literary influences are Harry Turtledove, Stephen R. Donaldson, Frank Peretti, Frank Herbert, Philip Dick, and Stephen King. Fisher resides in his fictional communities of Yellowwood, Indiana or Waycott, Kentucky whenever possible. You don't want to know everything that goes on there. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave chilling tales for dark nights, a five-star review, and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple podcast page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at...